quite a perspective, isn't it? Like, I, I could see what he's saying, you know? You, you hear that, it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling. And, and yet, there's also something really enticing about it. You know, like many days, I, I, I long for a life that's just simpler, you know? Slowed down. Even, there's even days I, I long for like a communal life, you know? Like where there's deep relationships where people know me, you know, and I'm known by them. And yet we live in a different culture, right? Like we, we live in a, in a real different world. I mean, obviously we live in a different world than Aboriginal Australia, right? But we live in a different world than most of the rest of the world. We live in a different time, too. I mean, things have changed in the last, you know, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. And as I think about it, I think what he's talking about here is broader than just a money thing. You know, it fleshes itself out in money. It fleshes itself out in materialism and all that sort of stuff. But this is the idea of selfishness, self-centeredness. You know, we live in this, this me culture, right? Where, where independence and individualism, those are the things that are king. Where I want things my way, in my time, under my conditions. Where, where I want to be entertained, you know? Where I want to be fulfilled. Where I want to achieve. Where I'm comfortable. And you should be too. That's your right. And sometimes, if I'm honest... Maybe if I'm honest, more than sometimes, many times, that's kind of enticing to me too, you know? A sort of individual, me-centered culture. It kind of feels nice to be comfortable. Like it, it kind of feels nice to be completely independent and not have to want for anything or rely on anybody else. Sometimes I just want to be alone, you know? Like sometimes I want to be isolated from everyone. That's so bad. Well, I love Jesus, you know? And, and I want to I wanna live for him, and I want to follow him, and I want to help other people. I want him to make sense to other people. I'm, and I'm part of his church. I am his church. And so as part of his church, what should my life look like? Like, how should I live? How, how should I live in relation to other people? You know? Like, those that are part of the church and those that are outside the church. Well, this this is what I want to dig into today. This is where I want to spend some time. I want to do it by looking at two little snapshots of the church, which interestingly look a lot like what that guy just described. One of them is at the end of Acts chapter 2. It picks up right after Benaiah left off last week. The other one's at the end of Acts chapter 4. Both of them give us a glimpse in what the earliest church, like what the, the very beginning of the church looked like, the things that they actually did, the things that they actually valued. So you may be asking, like, why, like okay, why is it important for us to look at this? I came across this quote from a, a theologian named J.B. Polhill, Pol and he said it this way. I think, it's, I think it's really insightful. He said, Luke's summaries, which is what we're going to look at, the at end of Acts chapter 2 and end of Acts chapter 4, these summaries of the early church, Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian 
Christian community, which it must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it's to have the unity of the Spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. Well, what does that mean? If I want to be able to do church the way that God wants me to do church, i got to understand how Jesus' earliest disciples did it. The guys that were with him, right? If I want to be able to do church now the way that he wants me to, it's really helpful to look back and see how they did church then. So I, I want to dig into it. So flip open, if you've got a Bible, flip open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got a whole table full of them back there. We'd love to uh, get you one. And you can have it. You can keep it. It can be yours forever and ever. As you're flipping there, I want to remind you of just um, a couple of the things. I think I may have broke my music stand there. I want to remind you of a couple of the, the kind of overarching big picture themes that we're talking about throughout this series. Right? We said there's some things. So in this Multiply series, there's some things that kind of stretch. We call them meta-themes. They stretch all across Acts. Three things. The first thing is that this is all like one big story. Right? We're all, we're, we are part of one big story. It started 2,000 years ago with Jesus and it's continued ever since then. And the story's been written in lots of different chapters by lots of different people, but it's all one story. And so you and I are part of that story, right? And so the question that I, that I want you to kind of be chewing on is what's, what kind of story is your life writing? We're, we're part of the story. People are going to read about our story someday. What's your chapter look like? like? What kind of story is your life writing? That's the first thing. Second thing is we said, like, this is an impossible mission. The mission that Jesus left us on, when Jesus left, he said, I want you to go and make disciples, right, of all nations, baptizing them, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, this mission that he's given us is an impossible mission if we think it all depends on us. Because I can't change people's hearts, right? To make the disciple of Jesus means there's heart change. I can't change people's hearts. I am completely and totally dependent on God. I'm totally dependent on His Spirit living inside of me. And so my question to you is, how much are you depending on God? Like, as you live your life, as you live the mission that God leaves us on here, to know Him, to live for Him, to give Him away to other people, as you're living this mission... How much are you depending on him or how much are you trying to do it on your own? That's the second thing. Second, second thing, right? Third thing, this is a spiritual thing that's happening. You know, it's really easy to look at, you know, all of, all of what we're trying to do and make disciples and look at just like the externals, you know? Well, Scott's life looks different. Scott's life is changing. He's sinning less. He's doing more good things. Listen, the mission that he's given us is not primarily a physical thing. We tend to focus on the physical. It's not primarily a physical thing that's happening. It's a spiritual thing that's happening. God is changing people's spirits and he allows you and I to be part of that process, right? It's, the, it's, the, it's driven, our external, our actions are driven by what's going on inside. The internal always drives the external. So this mission that we're on is primarily a spiritual thing. So it's one big story, right? We're all part of it. Like what kind of story is your life writing right now? It's an impossible mission if we depend on us. Fortunately, we're not alone. Jesus said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age, right? And this is a spiritual thing that God is doing inside of us. So those are three kind of overarching things I want you to keep in your mind as we go through this. So you're in Acts chapter 2, hopefully. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So this is our first snapshot of what the early church looks like. And it's fascinating. I, I'm so excited to share this with you 
tonight. It's fascinating, okay? And, and as we dig into this, I want, I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you, maybe closing your eyes helps, I don't know, I want you to just try to create a mental image of what this looked like, okay? Here we go, Acts chapter 42, I'm going to read nice and slow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So 3,000 people were, when I ended last week, 3,000 people were added to their number. Okay, so the church has grown. They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Picture it. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Keep one finger there and move two chapters to the right to chapter 4. Chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, starting in verse 32. He goes on, he gives us another little glimpse, another little picture, another little snapshot. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Imagine, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Whew. It's beautiful, isn't it? Like, talk about different than how things look today, right? It's so different. I, I made a list of all of the, the different qualities of the early church as described in this passage. I want you to see it. And we're gonna throw it, I had to do it in two slides. So I want, we're going to throw it up on the screen. Throw up that first one there. This, this is like, I just take this in. Just think about this. Take this in. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted, right? Committed. They trusted the honesty and integrity of their leaders. When they sold money, when they sold land, they brought it to the apostles' feet, all right? They said, do with it what you may. They trusted them. They were devoted to the fellowship, to each other. I'll talk about what that means in a minute. They were devoted to breaking bread together, like sharing meals together. They were devoted to prayer Everyone, those outside the community, so not just like the church, but those outside the community, everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and miraculous signs done by the apostles. The apostles did amazing things to verify the, the, the truth of the message, right? Here's the truth about Jesus. Let me show you that this is true because God's power is going to come through me and we're, I'm going to do amazing things to you right now, right? Everyone was in awe of those things. They were together a lot. It says they met together every day in the temple courts. Next slide. They had everything in common, and they shared with each other generously. Just, I mean, just imagine what that's like. Not one of them, no one in need among them. So no one had any needs among them. They ate together with gladness, like joy and sincerity. Not out of obligation. They were sincere in it. They were one in heart and mind. They were deeply united to each other. 
They praised God together. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. Imagine that. How different today, right? The church enjoyed the favor of all the people. They lived in the power of God to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. So they lived in God's power and they told people the truth about who Jesus is. And they were multiplied. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Like this, this is what the church looked like at its inception. In the beginning, this is it. And it was beautiful, right? Strange. Countercultural, even countercultural back then, but beautiful. And it was so attractive to people, right? Now, I think it's easy to look at that and think, well, I mean, that's, that's cool for them. I mean, that's 2,000 years ago. It's a different culture, much simpler time, right? They didn't have as much stuff. They didn't have as much technology. It's so much simpler. Nothing like that, nothing, anything remotely resembling that could even work in our culture today. Well, I hear you. And, and I, don't, I don't totally disagree with you. Like, Christianity's got a lot of baggage in our culture today, right? There's a lot of baggage. Because, see, now we have a history. Back then, they didn't have a history. Now we have a history, and it's a long history. The church, it's a history of the church doing some great things, right? And it's a, it's a history of the church doing some terrible things. Some terrible things. And people know it. And some people define the church only by the terrible things that the church has done, right? And so not only does the church not have their favor, they hate the church. And in many cases, rightly so. Because the church, the people of the church, have wronged them. They've hurt them. Like, this is reality. I get that. I understand that. You know, even the, even the early church, it didn't stay like this for very long. Like, it didn't stay super pure like this for very long. It, it, what it looked like in Acts chapters 2 through 4 didn't stay like that. You get to chapter 5, and you start seeing this selfishness that, that, that starts bubbling up within the church. You read about two people, Ananias and Sapphira. You ever heard of them? It's crazy. God, God strikes them down. It's crazy. We're going to actually look at that in two weeks. You get to chapter 6 and you see this passage of more selfishness when the Hebraic Jews don't give the Grecian Jewish widows enough food. And they complain. I'm like, we're not getting, we're not, we're not being fed properly. And they complain, right? Like selfishness, sin and selfishness seeps its way into the church really, really quick. You see it more and more throughout Acts and throughout Paul's letters. So I'm not proposing that we like put all our money in a big communal bank account and go buy up a couple blocks in Barberton and create us a big old comp immune with me as your cult leader, right? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not proposing that. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I wonder if instead of dismissing these snapshots, these little snapshots that we get, as like, oh, well, that's, that's good for them. You know, that was good for them in their time. If instead of dismissing them, I wonder what it would do if we look at them deeply and think about how we could radically apply those to our lives today as we're writing our story our part of the story in 21st century Northeast Ohio, right? Because see, we're, we're not perfect, right? I mean, the, the, the church is imperfect. Churches aren't exactly flourishing here in our, in our little community here or in, in America, period. 
There's lots of struggles going on with the church. We don't have this figured out. And the church needs to find creative ways in order to, to be faithful to Scripture, right? But also be attractive to our culture and give Jesus to people who just want to know, right? So instead of us repulsing and sticking to our traditions, this is how we do it, doggone it. We gotta look at ourselves and say, well, like, what does it look like for me to apply this to my life and to our campus today? See, I think there's some principles here for us that I want to I wanna dig into. And I think they flesh themselves out a little differently in our lives today, right? But the principles are the same. And so I want to share some of these with you, and I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think about these. Like, what does it look like in your life? And we're, we're going to talk about four things. How do you think, like, what? Like, how do I apply this to me? You guys are adults. We don't need a spoon feed, right? Like, think about these. How do I apply it to me and my life? And then broader, how do we apply it to our campus? We are all in this together, right? God is building something here, and we all have a part. So I want to dig into this. So let me, let me go to the first principle. First principle. First thing I notice as I look at these snapshots of the church, the very first thing that I noticed is that they were focused on God. There's a God focus. It says, first it says, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. These are the guys that were with Jesus. These are the ones that learned from him, right? They spent significant time with him. What do you think that the apostles taught about? When it talks about apostles' teaching, what do you think they taught about? Jesus and the gospel. I came across a quote from a guy named Francis Chan. I like it. He's explaining this, and he says this. He says, They, the church in Acts 2, the passage that we were just looking at, they had a deep commitment to what the apostles taught. The apostles' teaching emphasized everything that happened in Christ and the significance of these events. In other words, the apostles were dedicated to the gospel. Their teaching was the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, and this teaching would later be recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to form the New Testament. So the New Testament we hold in our hands is the apostles' teaching. The same truths that the early church were devoted to. God's word has always been essential to the life of the church. Isn't that cool? Like we, So we don't have the apostles with us. How could we be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, here it is. Like we have it. I guess specifically maybe from about here back. Right? It's, it's the New Testament. And it's so available to us. Look, I'll take a full back there. You don't have one? Take one. You got a phone? Get the app, right? It's available to us all of the time. And so I want you to ask yourself, like, how... This is fundamental to the early church, right? God-focused. They're committed to the apostles' teaching. How committed are you in your life to the apostles' teaching? It's here, right? It just takes a little discipline to open it up and to actually dig into it and to read it. It's so simple. It's so available to us, and yet it's so powerful in our lives. So that's the first thing. Second thing is prayer. It says that they were devoted to prayer. You know what prayer is, right? Prayer is closing our eyes and asking God for as many things as we can think about until we start thinking about what we're going to have for dinner tonight, and then we start going... <laughs> No, that's not prayer, right? That's not prayer. Prayer is slowing down, quieting our lives, right? Quieting my heart from all of the chaos. You guys walked in here, I bet you have some chaos going on in your life. We all do. Quieting my heart, quieting the chaos, opening up my heart to God and talking to Him and listening to Him. The power in my life comes through prayer. You know why? Because when I pray, my spirit connects with the Holy Spirit. 
in a deep and profound way. I am empowered by him. And then the more that I step out in my life, the more that I live on this mission that God has called me to, the more I need that power, the more I need to be empowered by prayer through him, through his spirit, right? So my question to you is, like, are you plugged into your power source? It's so simple. Anytime, I talk about this with my kids. It's amazing. Anytime we could talk to God, He's available 24 7 no matter what we're going through. Like, how plugged into your power source are you in your life? How much are you living in dependence upon Him? We're going to talk about prayer next week. Whole sermon specifically about prayer as we dig into Acts chapter 4. It's a beautiful and incredible, powerful prayer that the early believers prayed. Stay tuned next week. He goes on. He says, they were praising God. So they uh, were focused on God, the apostles' teaching, prayer, and they were praising God. This is worship, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially what this is. For many of us, worship is a part of prayer, but it goes beyond prayer. Are you living your life in worship to God? Do you know what worship is? Worship is an... I wrote a definition. This is my definition. It's an appropriate response to God in His true greatness, majesty, power, holiness, and love. So it's an appropriate response to God by one who's lowly and humble and flawed and imperfect and in great need. That's what worship is. It's an appropriate response for us to this incredible God by people who are not so incredible. He's perfect. We're really flawed. He's really loving. I can focus on myself an awful lot. He is powerful. I am weak. He's God and I'm not. And so I worship him because he's worthy, right? He's worthy and he provides for us. The early church was so God-focused. You know, it's amazing how when, you know, I actually spend time with God. I was praying about this today. When I actually spend time with God, it's amazing how it changes me. You know? And it's amazing how when I don't, I can get off track. You know, whether, and, and, you know, maybe it's stress, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's anxiety. It could be a lot of different things. But when you're with Him, it just, it, it, our circumstances don't always change, right? But our heart does, our perspective does, our passion does. The foundation of the early church, first thing I notice when I read it, is this God focus. That's the first thing. Second thing that I notice when I look at the snapshot of the church is that there is this incredible unity. Like they are absolutely united. It says that they were devoted to the fellowship, to fellowship. That word fellowship in the original language in the Greek is koinonia. You may have heard of that before. It means deep communion. Fellowship's kind of a, maybe not strong enough of a term. It means deep communion. It means deep relational intimacy. Like koinonia, this sort of fellowship, it's not just like hanging out in the doctor's office, hanging out with people that are waiting for their appointment too. I did that this week. We had no koinonia. We had no fellowship. I had one of, the, I had one of those little skin tags I had to have removed. <laughs> Slice that baby right off. His name was Flappy. I name those things sometimes. I asked if I could have... No, I'm just... Gonna, go ahead. That's, not, that's not fellowship. That's not koinonia, right? Facebook relationships, that's not koinonia. It's much deeper than that. It's this deep relational intimacy. Like when somebody's got your back, you know? They got your back just as much when times are hard as when times are good. And vice versa. They're committed to you. They know you. 
even the rotten parts of you, and they don't give up on you. That's koinonia, that's fellowship. It talks about them sharing meals together with glad and sincere hearts. Like, it's not forced, you know? The apostles weren't out there going, hey, listen, you guys should develop some small groups and eat meals together. That's not, that's not what this is about, right? They did it with joy, with gladness. Like, they chose to do this with sincerity, sincere hearts. It says that they went to church together every day. It actually says they went to temple together. Back then, they were part of, still part of the Jewish system. So they went to church together every day. Probably sat in the same seats, right? It's kind of a human thing. And it says in Acts 4.32, it says that they were one in heart and mind. That they were united to each other. Like they loved each other. They genuinely cared about each other. They opened up their lives to each other. I'm sure they were different. Like we're all different, right? I'm sure they were different, like significantly different, but they were totally on the same page. You know why? Because they each had the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit living inside of them, leading them, guiding them, changing them. They were spiritual brothers and sisters. We just sang that song, Brother, right? They were spiritual brothers and sisters. And that's deeper. The Spirit is deeper than blood, right? They were united. They were one. It's like this unique time in human history when something, when the church was so pure, it was so uncontaminated, that at least for a little bit, people didn't take advantage of each other, you know? Like they loved each other. Each person's focus seemed to have to not just be on themselves, but on like ways they could help folks that were struggling. Somebody has a need, I could help with that need. I'm going to step forward and, I can, and I'm going to do it. You need money? I got land. I'll sell it. I'll help you. It was beautiful. They were united as one. There's this incredible deep unity. It makes me a little jealous, I'll be honest with you. Because I long for that in my own life. That kind of leads to the third thing. The ancient church, so it's, it's God-focused, it's deeply united, and it's incredibly generous. Incredibly generous. This is the thing that, that sti- when I look at these snapshots, these passages, this is the thing that sticks out to me the most. I think it's because it's so scarce in our culture today. It's fascinating how unimportant when these people came, when the early when these people came to know Jesus, it's fascinating how unimportant their stuff became. Just like that. Right? Like you know that there were some that were selfish, right? Like that's part of being being a human and then they come to know Jesus and they're willing to just open up their lives put up put let, you have an, you have a need let me help you with that it's amazing how just like that how unimportant their stuff became because they were changed you know it's interesting there, there doesn't seem to be any place in the New Testament I searched there doesn't seem to be any place where this kind of extreme generosity is taught you know like throw all of your money into a big pot meet everybody's needs And then when there's not enough money left, go sell something and add more money to it. Like, that ain't anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, if you read a little bit later in Acts and some of Paul's letters, he seems even, like Paul seems even surprised at the level of generosity that some in the early church lived with. Guys, listen. Like, what could this look like today? Just think about it. Think about your life. Like, what, do you feel, let me ask you this, do you feel the the spirit whisper to your spirit about generosity? 
Like he, he doesn't yell. He doesn't scream at us. We can silence him if we want. But like when you see somebody who's having trouble paying their bills, like do you, do you hear him whisper to you? Like you have enough, you could help. When you, when you see somebody who's having trouble putting food on the table, do you, do you hear him? Say, yeah, why don't you help him? Go buy him groceries. When somebody doesn't have enough money to get diapers for their baby, why don't you help? Medical bills that are building up. And I, and I get that not everybody, like we can't always do this. We're not always in a position to be able to help. But many times, if our hearts are willing, we are. Like what if we cared just a little bit, just a little bit less about our retirement one day and a little bit more about the needs of people around us today? Just, just a little bit. Like we don't have to live in communes and, and throw all of our money into a big pot in order to be generous the way that God calls us to be generous. And, and I don't know about you. I don't know if you think about this. I do a lot. I am so rich. Like, I am so rich compared to the vast majority of the world. Like, I don't know any of your financial situations, but I can almost promise you, across the board, everybody in this room is in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on this planet. And not just the top top 10% on the planet right now, but who have ever walked on this planet. In fact, many of us are probably in the top 5%. And it's, and it's a gift from God, right? I mean, it's an absolute gift from God, but it's for more than just me and my good pleasure. And as I think about it and I pray about it, I think, God, I don't want to blow it. You know, you have entrusted me with so much. I don't want to blow it. Like, what am I going to do with my wealth? What am I going to do with my stuff? How can I make the best use of it? Not just good use. There's lots of good things. But how can I make the best use of it? How can I be most strategic for you, God, and for your kingdom? You know, one of the things my mom has said, I've heard her say, she probably doesn't even remember. She said, they, I'll embarrass them a little bit, they were helping somebody at the time. And my mom said, everybody needs a rich friend. I started thinking about that. You know, that's really true. Like everybody needs somebody in their life that they could turn to when times are tough. You know, that they could help that they could step in and be the rich friend. Rich friend doesn't mean we're rich. It just means we have the means to be able to help people. Who am I the rich friend to? Who, who are you the rich friend to? See, it's not evil to have stuff. Like that's, that's not evil. It's a gift from the Lord, right? But I got a question. I got two questions maybe that, that'll help us evaluate this. Like, what are you doing with your stuff? And does your stuff have your heart, or does God have your heart? Like, having stuff's not bad. It's a gift from the Lord. But what are we doing with it? For hoarding it? Something's wrong, right? What am I doing with my stuff? And does my stuff have my heart? Or does God have my heart? Two very important questions. Here's two more, since you asked. Here's two more. Do I see my money and stuff as a gift from God to me? Do I see it as just like God's kindness, God's graciousness to me? Do I see my money and my stuff as a way to bless other people? If you can answer yes to both of those questions, I promise you, your life will overflow with generosity. I promise you. 
Guys, just think about how much our our community, our city would change if just the Christians lived more generously. Like, think about how things would change. Think about how much more quickly people would be willing to accept the truth of, of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, if they saw generosity lived out in our lives. And our lives beg the question, why, why, why does he live that way? How much more willing would people be to hear the good news of Jesus if we just chose to live our lives more generously? I think, so you can disagree with me if you want, I think selfishness and self-centeredness is one or maybe the, I, I think it's the biggest thing that's holding back our church and our culture today. I, I, I really believe that. We act just like everybody else. And we want to hold on to most of what's ours. Right? I worked hard for it. I need it. I'm providing for me. You can provide for you. I got me. You, worry, you need to work harder. That's called selfishness. There's no other name for it. It's selfishness. And it'll kill your relationship with God eventually if you persist in it. Because you'll look at God and you'll say, I don't need you either. I got this covered. I got this. The early church was so generous with each other. Last thing, final thing. As I look into this snapshot, they invited others to experience it. The gospel, right? Like they seem to constantly share about the resurrection of Jesus. They seem to constantly share about the gospel. It says they met together in a very public place, the temple courts. They talked about Jesus, right? The apostles taught about Jesus and people listened. Converse, like you imagine what it was like there. You know, conversations happen. You're in a room like this, but in a very open public place. People hear this stuff going on. I can just imagine like the little com- the organic conversations that just spring up. Like, well, what did he mean? When he said that. What did he mean by that? I don't understand. Like people talked about Jesus. People talked about the gospel and they invited others to experience it. And you know what happened? The Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Like they, they, they did what God said to do. And God changed people's hearts. They were faithful in sharing the good news and God was faithful in changing people's hearts. That's how it worked back then. And guess what? That's how it works today, too. If you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, you didn't come to know Jesus because somebody gave you a really slick description. It was a really good teacher, and they gave you a bunch of convincing truths about Jesus. And you go, okay, I got you. That makes sense to me. I'm going to give him my life. You came to know Jesus because somebody faithfully presented the gospel to you, and then God entered the scene, and he softened your heart, and he called you to himself. And he gave you his spirit to live inside of you as you chose him. Right? And the church is multiplied. The church is multiplied. It's amazing how when we just do what God tells us to do, he does what he promises to do. And the church grows. You know, as I look at the the early church, these little snapshots, you know what I see? I see people who knew it, who were getting to know it, who were living it out, the gospel out. And they were giving it away. I got it. 
That's what I see. That's essentially what they were doing. They were getting to know the gospel and the God of the gospel better, right? They were God-focused. They were living out the gospel in their lives in all kinds of crazy ways in biblical community. And they were giving the gospel away to others, helping Jesus make sense to anybody who was interested. That's, that's what they did back then. That's what we're called to do today. And when we're faithful, God grows his church. And he changes people's hearts. And we've had the really cool experience to see that already here at our campus today. We step out, we go, God, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know if we could do it. You're going to have to really step in and provide. But we take a little step, and he takes a step. And we take a step, and he takes a step. And sometimes we're at the edge, and we're going to take a big step. And when we do, he steps in. And he does what he promises. He's so good to us. And he's faithful. And he changes people. We got to step in. And we got to work the mission that he's given us with dependence on him. And when we do, God multiplies his church.